Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Well, hello, hello. For the second time in a month, I find myself in a place that I guess I'm going to have to start regarding as my front room. And it's a front room with an amazing view out over the river and the buildings of the north bank of the Thames, because I'm on the south bank of the Thames. I'm perched in the uppermost floors of the Royal Festival Hall, perched with me. Heather Ajipong, who is, well, photographer is the right place to start. Yeah, yeah, I would say a very vaguely and pretentiously artist. I think I'll tell you that. <laughs> why, why is that? <laughs> that seems neither vague nor pretentious. Uh, I have been looking at a lot of your photographs today. Are you trying to distance yourself from photography? Are you trying to make sure that you keep your options open? I guess I kind of dabble in particular mediums or, or, or jump around mediums. So if I say artist, I feel that's vague and I can jump back and forth and it'd be okay. And pinning myself down and saying I'm a photographer. I feel like you could also call yourself a photojournalist but you might not want to one of the things that impressed me the most about some of the photographs and we'll be we'll be describing some of your work in just a sec but a lot of your work seems to hinge on uh, I, I want to avoid the word issues but I can't it seems to deal with uh, important stuff no. it's, it's not it's not merely in the abstract yeah a lot of my work is about issues around social justice and mental health but I think if I pin myself down and say photojournalism then that will kind of limit me and a lot of my work is very subjective and I'm critical about myself as a photographer so photojournalism sometimes presents itself as being objective which I don't want to be I want to kind of engage with the work and what it means to me and people are people who I'm photographing Shall we maybe the, the the best place to start is now and then work back in terms of your output because the work in progress for 2017 is is very London centric yeah, so the project's called Habitus, and it's looking at young people um, about their kind of worries and concerns since the last general election, because there's a real kind of political engagement and awareness I was finding people around my age. So I, I wanted to kind of give them a soapbox to talk about what their concerns were in regards to policy change, 
things happening with things like Brexit and issues around gentrification and how um, the city is changing and what that means to them. So that's what the project's about. So when we're thinking about young people, do you count yourself as, as being in that category? Or <laughs> Yeah, I'm kind of banging the I'm 27, so I'm, ta- I'm looking at people between the ages of 18 to around 35. So that I've made that statement of young person, but that's kind of what I'm gauging as so-called young how much does that overlap with millennials? I'm still completely unclear on what counts as a millennial. I'm not sure. I think millennial is anyone below the age of kind of, I guess, 1980s. So I'm touching upon that and going a little bit over. So you can be born in the 90s and still be a millennial? I think so. Right. Okay. <laughs> I um, think so. Um, so what sort of stuff, when you, is there like consensus around particular viewpoints of, of people coming from in general in that group? A particular direction politically? I guess so. I think after Brexit, I realised that a lot of us Londoners are in this sort of bubble. So I'm trying to critique what it means to be Londoners. Because a lot of us kind of... The people I'm interviewing are kind of liberals a bit, a bit left. And I'm trying to people to think about what that means to not just Londoners, people around England and the UK. So I'm being quite critical of kind of our London privilege, I guess. Yeah, because that, that's the big thing that seemed to have come out, particularly of the Brexit conversations, isn't it? Is that uh, there's two Britons they're kind of the urban the urban Britain and then they um, the, everything else no, <laughs> that, was a, that was a long way of something, no, no, saying something simple sure, completely I think for me it, I wasn't just shocked about the result I was, I was kind of um, completely astounded because I realised that when I think about it, when I think about issues around social justice and marginalisation it's very London based I hardly think about places in the north and having that realisation makes me want to be more critical of that that privilege I guess and I think we're realising that now more and more as Londoners so I want there to be a kind of connection between the North and the South in regards to young people so hopefully the project with some funding will um, kind of move to areas around the UK for there to be more of an engagement and, and conversation happening between both regions. Maybe it's too early in the project to wonder or to, to come to you, I guess, for any sort of feedback if you haven't done the, that bit of the project yet. But I wonder how you're going to be received because a lot of people outside of London seem to think of Londoners as, as not really understanding what's going on. You know, there's a lot of that talk in Brexit, you know, you don't get it. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I think I'm going to be very open. Um, so my aim isn't to kind of skew the portraits or the the interviews in that. It's kind of very... Everyone's very liberal. People who have who disagree with my viewpoint, I want to talk to them too because I think we need to understand really what's going on because none of us really knew... I think now we still don't know what's going on and what motivated people. So just engaging in conversation and debate, that's all I really want to do with the project. That idea that young people were pro-Europe uniformly and the old people were the ones who wanted to get us out, how well does that stand up in your experience so far what have you what have you been doing what have you been hearing so far well i've only been photographed around 30 people in london and they've everyone's pretty much wanted to to stay i have been talking to people who are european too so i mean they're they kind of want to stay too um that's but, not, not a given is it i mean they're already in europe presumably so they would want to stay in europe but, sure, no. <laughs> but, but what, it's not a given that they would necessarily want britain to stay in europe i i guess a lot of us kind of vote, the people who voted, who I've spoken to, seem to vote for kind of selfish reasons. So we like travelling around Europe, cheap travel, right? And a lot of the artists and creative community, they get a lot of European land development funds. So for their own kind of interest in regards to career-wise, they all really wanted to stay because of those benefits. So I haven't heard that much 
critique or wanting to leave, but I'm sure that's going to happen soon when I start talking to more and more people. So what's the process here? Have you got a formula? To recruit the people for the project? Ah, just open calls, people I find interesting, people who I find interesting but disagree with and want to talk to you more about. Um, oh, hallelujah. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I am so fed up with people only speaking to people that they agree with. Yeah, yeah, no, I think... Again, that's a London thing, right? That's why we were so shocked. I think you've got to speak to those people to really kind of get a well-rounded view of what's going on. Because there's kind of this whole we-know-everything kind of attitude. And I think we've got to break out of that. I'm a, I'm a victim of that for sure. And I think I've just got to be more critical. In what way are you a victim of Just... I'm just shocked by everything. I think I've been brought up with very liberal values so that when the Brexit vote happened, I just assumed, oh, they're all bigots, but actually... I just jumped to a, com- a conclusion, and then when I started to engage people, like my friends in the, in Hull, they were talking about kind of industry and investment, and it just opened my eyes. And I think young people sometimes don't want to hear that. And things with social media, there was this argument that you only see what kind of things you're interested. In. So if you're a Labour voter, you only hear about people who have those liberal views. You don't hear about other people. So it seems that everybody is on your side through social media, but actually, it's completely skewed. So I think that's a, that's a tricky thing with social media. You only hear what you kind of want to hear. Right, yes, and you, you follow people that you agree with rather than those that you exactly, find complicated. Exactly. Because with social media, if you're following someone, it's clearer on Facebook, I guess, because you're, you're saying you like something. Mm-hmm. But with, uh, with like Twitter, for instance, if you follow somebody, that seems to imply that you place some value in what they say. I was curious about I thought this sounds like an organisation of maniacs. Let's find out what they have to say for themselves. And I realised that by following them, I'm somehow endorsing them. Right, right. Yeah, I, I don't. I think I've, I've just kind of left that alone. I just really want to know more about everything rather than just picking and choosing stuff. I think you're just being ignorant, really, if you're not engaging in debates with Katie Hopkins and, and thinking, oh, I'm not going to engage with that at all, but actually trying to understand and get an intelligent argument. Having those debates are what changes things. Just having talks with the same people is not going to actually make any change at all, you know what I mean? Mm. So that's kind of the heart of the project, and that's what I want to do more in my photography, I think. You were saying you wanted to promote conversation and debate, but what's your part in that? Are you getting stuck in with a particular viewpoint, or are you sort of a passive observer? No, so I... Or an agent provocateur, <laughs> maybe, but was, are you taking a position? I mean... Even though I'm trying to be as, as objective as possible, I'm not going to be, right? So if someone is kind of, like, heavily racist, I'm not going to interview them, right? But I ask people the same kind of three questions. What are their motivations? What are their concerns? What are their worries? And they can kind of say whatever they want. There's no briefing before. We talk for an hour. And I photograph them throughout the whole thing so that they can say whatever they want. I, I don't answer back or anything like that. So I'm trying to be just give them the platform to talk and then see what happens, really. I'm trying not to engage or kind of influence that Mm. but I guess it's up to the people who respond because if you know who I am and my values and disagree with me it's interesting that you want to respond and be interviewed so I don't I don't know what that says about me or that person but um I'm leaving up to them I'm leaving up to them really I wonder if you shouldn't let the racist people uh, say what they want to say as well I don't know I don't know how that will go down um I I feel that's kind of my my weak point that's that's kind of my tipping point it would be really interesting I'd love to I'd love to those those photographers you kind of were with kind of um like skinheads and learned about the culture and I think that's really fascinating but 
I mean, I'd wear a bag over my head. I don't know. How would I? How would I? How would <laughs> well, I engage? There was, <laughs> we, we were at the Ben Yuri a little while ago, and there was a photographer that we were talking about. And my guests there were suggesting that because she was female, and this is a few years back, she was able to capture much more candid shots, or at least very different shots, than a male photographer would have been able to do. Now, I don't know whether I, that's necessarily the case. Who knows what she looked like? She could have been a very imposing figure. I don't know. But the idea of the visibility or invisibility of the photographer and the degree to which they impose themselves on the, the subject, whether the viewer of the picture can see that or not, is quite an interesting dimension. And I was looking at some of your pictures deal with places where, and I know you're not calling yourself a journalist, but, but journalists have been and left uh, big footprints. And so I guess the, the presence of media or the presence of Western people has left a mark. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about that project. Yeah, of course. So the project's called The Gaze on Agoboshi. So it's a huge e-waste dump site in Ghana, Accra. So I spent a month on the dump site and basically I kind of just looked as Ghanaian as possible. So I took, so I wear braids now. I took my braid, I had a little afro. I speak Chui, so I speak the local dialect. Um, and I'm a woman and a lot of the people who lived there were Muslim men so they treated me really really well and they gave me a lot of access what? (laughs) it was no they treated me like an like a queen they were really hospitable because people uh, imagine this place to be very dangerous but I was treated really carefully the people always around me they, they treated a lot of the kind of uh, European tourists quite harshly but they treated me really well and they were quite frustrated that they were being constantly photographed in this kind of negative light and they were promised money and education and when I first when I initially went there it was to understand what was really going on and I just found out this whole thing that was kind of a con so people were paid to pose in particular positions to get blood samples there's 40,000 people living on this big dump site so there's kind of shanty huts um, there's a lot of e-waste from mostly um, from Ghana for sure but um, America and the UK so waste is kind of illegally dumped there and young boys burn the waste and get kind of precious materials so gold coppers and then they sell them on so there's a kind of a, a working environment there but when I went there I realised you know there's a bank there there's a, there's a little school there but it was portrayed as this kind of um, dystopic wasteland but actually there's like a real community going there and that wasn't really spoken about during the literature and people have gone there and won awards and photographed there and done PhDs about the project, uh, the dump site but um, yeah the people were just very frustrated that they were being portrayed in this way as, as kind of criminals and these poverty stricken people so the project was kind of to talk about critiquing our, our kind of gaze on on kind of the whole continent of Africa and understanding that there's currency and kind of poverty and um, so-called NGO work, you know, there's money in it. If people, if people aren't portrayed as kind of dying and desperate, no money can be generated. So it's just questioning that. And also my kind of awkwardness about it, right, because I'm part of that. I'm part of both the British society and the Ghanaian society and they're both kind of not... There's a lot of tensions between them, I guess, in regards to how they're portrayed and how they're looked at both as, as countries. Like, one is taking resources from the other, and the other is like... I don't know, there's, there's always been a tension with me being kind of British and Ghanaian, finding it a bit awkward, knowing about the legacy of kind of colonisation, but also kind of benefiting from that and where I place myself. So I'm very critical of that in my work, I think. I wonder if this is zeitgeist or whether this is just my personal experience i've been doing some work with an organization up at cambridge university called aid reversed 
that's a project by a cross-disciplinary bunch of people working at mostly PhD level, and they're looking at ways in which the relationship between Africa and all the countries that make up Africa, which, by the way, is not just one country. Right, right, right. There's still this assumption. Yeah. Yeah. And the way that the West can benefit from, and not in terms of minerals, Africa, what are they doing better than we're doing? Mm. And there's a lot of stuff like that. For example, microeconomic systems. Yes, yeah, which was very much part of the system in Agabushi. Things worked really quickly and efficiently there. So it, it was, it was, I felt like we never we never have this idea that we're going to learn the assumption is that we are going to teach right no matter what color you are if you're anywhere in the west when you're going there you're going to help them and yes, you're, ne- you're still a victorian missionary kind of yeah there's there's never there's never real really an exchange and i think only when we have rural exchanges with stuff in regards to photography art whatever then there'll be some sort of learning on both parts and the work will be more important if there's no exchange just the same thing you're just kind of taking something from them so it's kind of like an artistic colonization or something do you know what i mean like a it feels like a, a robbery is happening so see this is i find this difficult with um, <laughs> with some aspects of art because s- some artists talk a very good game but what they produce if I didn't know the story behind it, looks can look very similar to something somebody else with an entirely different story has taken. And I start to worry that it's all in the salesmanship. So I'm wondering what, what about the images was influenced by this particular line of approach? Yeah, um, well, entirely. I mean, I was going to make a completely different project. My, I was interested in e-waste and how can... Britain and the UK be dumping the waste. It wasn't about this at all. So everything about the conversations I had influenced the images. So the aesthetic is kind of this blue, this this topic. I was thinking about things like Matrix. And it was kind of to show this kind of embellishment of how we think of African issues as this kind of um, never-ending problem and dystopic and apocalyptic like the worst of the worst as soon as we just think about issues in Africa so I wanted to visually represent that and I spoke a lot with the people I was photographing saying do you like this image a lot of them a lot of the images you can't see people's faces and kind of the whole dehumanisation of image taken in West Africa and especially at that time the Ebola crisis was happening so this whole mania of you know the the whole continent's infected and that so I was thinking about those things and how they can be represented visually the kind of ridiculousness of it i wonder how the genesis of that project ties in with that uh, south london project that you were working on with fixing so because when you talk about e-waste what what does that mean e-waste is uh, technology waste right yes yeah yeah yeah. so down in south london they've uh, they've got a project where they're trying to stop the waste from going out there in the first place ah yes so restart project started was at the start so i think i watched something on b the bbc one the one show or something and then we'll forgive you Oh, <laughs> okay. Um, and um, they were talking about planned obsolescence, and I found that really fascinating. That after two and a half years, something will stop working, and I just started observing that in technologies and why this is, and should we should we care more, and about value and things like that. So I engaged with them, and then I just started going to their their kind of restart party. So they a lot of them started in South London, where you take a bit of technology, any as old as. 10 years, 15 years, whatever, and they try to fix it for you because they don't want to, I guess, uh, they want people to value their technologies more and try to reduce the amount of e-waste. So that's kind of the connection. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's this huge place in 
Ghana in Accra, which is where my parents are from, and I never knew about it. So that was really the connection between the two projects. So the pictures that I've seen there, well, now, was this early in your career? This was my MA, my MA dissertation, so maybe three, three four years ago. Right, and the, the pictures that we were describing a moment ago in the junkyards, they seem qualitatively different to me. Yeah, the restart pictures were me just kind of snapping it. I think when I do things like event photography, it's a total different aesthetic. I think when I'm doing projects, they take around a year. So there's a hell of a lot of research before the project. So that took a year. The restart pictures were straight, like, they took around two days to do. Yeah, right. So I thought I, I got the feeling of the buzz of people and yes. uh, a lot of focus on soldering seeming to going yeah. on. You could smell the solder. <laughs> it seems to me like there's a lot of stuff that can be figured out. I'm quite keen on opening, even with the idea that we're not supposed to be able to fix things. Things aren't made with the idea that anybody should be able to fix them anymore. A lot of things can be brought back to life. That's a, an important... I speak as somebody who last night fixed, fixed an electric piano with no prior knowledge of fixing it. I'm very proud of myself. And I kind of despair of the idea that as soon as something malfunctions in some small way, it's uh, chucked over the shoulder and a new one is purchased. That's a terrible... I think the amount of, of, of person hours that go into creating a thing and the amount of resource that goes into that, uh, just to toss it away is kind of scandalous no definitely and issues around kind of things like conflict minerals so illegally getting kind of coppers and golds to make your phone and then throwing it away after two and a half years like thinking about what goes goes into the technology i think sometimes gives you a more sense of worth to kind of keep it going and restart project have been like incredible because some of your technologies are kind of sentimental right so you don't so it's not just about it, it helps me with this, this and this. There's someone gave it to me or a particular a particular memories on that phone or that device. And also, I guess, sometimes if something broke with your hoover, to, to get the parts for it are the same amount to get a new one. So when you call them up, they're saying, oh, just get a new one. So it's also a way of to generate... It's a bit of a con. So reali- when you realise things like that... You want, there's, you want a sense of ownership and restoration, I guess, when you really understand why you're buying more and more of this thing. Yeah, word, word to the wise people, if you don't already know this, when you upgrade your mobile phone, try and find a phone that has a battery that's not glued in place because the battery is the thing that's going to die. And And, uh, yeah, after two years, your battery will be going nowhere. You know, toss the battery and get a new battery, but you don't have to get rid of the whole phone. Yeah, that's a re- those really good tips. Yeah, yeah. So restart. I feel like I'm a technology expert now. <laughs> I fix this piano. <laughs> I can do no, but you do feel empowered, and well, just true, seeing yeah. like the light back on or the sound clip back on, and and it, and it lasts for kind of two more years. There is a um, that's well, in the case of my piano. <laughs> no, it's a fantastic feeling, and there's organisations now, things like Fairphone, which are not using kind of particular minerals, like because a lot of the way technologies are are kind of created. There's a lot of, not, I don't want to say like child sleep, but there's kind of a lot of um, suspects, quite depressing ways these technologies are made. So we have to value them longer, which just ethically, I think. So, um, yeah, I, I, try, I think I've had this phone for around four years. And they've tried to, they want me to upgrade it, but I'm just refusing to and going to restart projects to try to fix it. So, um, yeah. A, a, a description of Heather's phone, by the way. It's uh, about a foot, a foot and a half tall with a small earpiece, a detachable earpiece uh, that sits in a cradle halfway up it. Not particularly mobile. She's got a very long cord that stretches back out of, out of view. <laughs> Do you know, I did actually see somebody. 
Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. In um, Covent Garden, she got out of her... One of those people who, who's into kind of uh, poppy, plasticky textures and stuff like that. And her phone rang, and out of her bag she produced one of those enormous 1980s handheld mouth and ear receivers on a curly wire that went into her bag. And really? she answered, she answered that. I'd, I'd love if... <laughs> but then, then we get into trends. This is my worry, because it's kind of cool to be eth- eth- um, ethical and cool to be, I don't know, organic and whatever. I guess as long as people are being conscious, I'm, I'm happy even if it is a trend. But I, when I think of trends, I think of temporary. So that's my worry that this is kind of a cool thing to do now and it might change. I don't know. That's my... Is, is, it, is it cool to be ethical, do you think? I don't know. Do either of us actually know what is cool? I don't know, but I, I definitely don't, so maybe you don't. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Maybe, maybe it's a London thing too. I can only talk from experience, right? But I'm finding to be ethical is trendy, for sure. Like, all pe- celebrities are doing it, right? So being green and being energy efficient and being kind of technology and talking critically about big telephone companies with fruit companies, I can't name. I can't, yeah, talk, talking about Yeah, talking about it. So I think... But being... Yeah, I guess, well, you, you don't ever know what people are actually doing, right? But they're talking a lot about it, but I don't know what the change actually is. I wonder, because I, I can't help thinking, I mean, if you if you think about where the money is um, where, uh, in terms of unethical purchases, for example, I reckon we would look and we would see that unethical products were being guzzled down by the consumer. Uh, meanwhile, we're all tweeting about how much we think that's sure. a terrible idea. Or take <laughs> air, air travel, for example. No, that's, yeah, right, right, right. And... I think it's only going to get worse with particular president-elects. It's only going to get worse because there's less and less support of it. But um, no, we can well, we can blame him. 
but actually don't we need to I think that's the dangerous thing you know whether it's attacking a company or attacking a president or whatever it might be but actually as consumers or as voters don't we have the power I, I do agree, but I think for me, so Habitus, the, the project about London's was started after the last general election, and it wasn't, and I guess the impetus was feeling a bit um, depressed, I guess, because sometimes having these people in power who you strongly disagree with sometimes makes you feel apathetic because you feel that no one's, this is the status quo now, so it makes you less and less likely to feel empowered and then you think forget it I'm actually not going to recycle this thing because there's no point anyway because our governments don't care about this this and this so that's what happened to me particularly there was just an air of apathy not particularly because of David Cameron but because I felt that a lot of people felt disheartened after that especially young people because they felt they weren't being listened to this was the time I was in university this is the time when Nick Clegg was saying all of this stuff and about student, student fees and that so there was this really like depressive air um, and people just felt like they were just to give up so um, I think it, has, it plays a part though right um, and to acknowledge it how it affects people kind of mentally and their kind of morale and just general ideas and values if the status quo is so against them sometimes you can feel disempowered I think mm. I wonder if they've the flip side of that is it's um, it's easy uh, and maybe it's even kind of desirable even on a chemical level to feel angry and, and you can mm. it, it's easy to get behind a movement that involves anger whereas something that's all about a bit more balance and something that's more positive is, is less easy to rally forces behind yeah I think there's a sense of urgency when you're angry right so you want to do something quickly and that's often kickstarts movement so I definitely agree I think to be more positive yes that that frustration can can can, can create like a knee jerk effect to do something so yeah no there is a kind of a, a different side to it for sure yeah I think we're, yeah, that, that kind of righteous indignation can, can be a really positive force I mean oh well okay so I wondered and maybe we're, we're stepping on the toes of this I wondered about identity and there were some, some interesting pictures and I didn't I didn't know what to make of them but there were some fascinating pictures Victorian yeah, yeah, Victor- yeah, yeah, yeah. Victorian garb mm-hmm. um, and a black woman was it you in yes, the pictures okay me. so it's you in the pictures mm-hmm. dressed as uh, either in old, old fashioned clothing or as a maid I wasn't quite sure mm-hmm. No, that's, that's definitely not a maid's outfit. Okay. <laughs> so I think the pose rather than the clothes, the, the attire is, a, you'd think, of uh, Gone with the Wind if you saw this dress. Yeah, so this is uh, based on a woman called Lady Sarah Forbes Bonetta. So Queen um, Victoria adopted a Nigerian girl when she was three years old. Queen Victoria adopted a ton of a ton of kids, but she adopted this girl. She, she was because she didn't have many of her own, <laughs> right? Greedy. Yeah, she's just she adopted a ton of kids all around the world. And Lady Sarah was a gift for for Queen Victoria. She was taken by Frederick Forbes, and she was really um, intelligent and creative. So the Queen kind of adopted her and looked after her for the, all of her life. When I was reading about her life, there was nothing mentioned about uh, any issues with kind of gender or race. So I was thinking about um, how can I reimagine Sarah if she lived now, what she would be going through, any issues with kind of mental health and trauma, things which I went through, which I never saw kind of black women go through. Um, they were always kind of portrayed as strong and resilient and powerful. And when I struggled with mental health, I never saw 
a black woman's oppressed. Like, even in my own family, everyone's super strong. And everyone's thinking about everyone else and not themselves. So I wanted to kind of reimagine Sarah as myself. Um, and did she go through these traumas? And did she go through these worries? So that's, I dressed up as her and kind of reenacted, reenacted that, really. How common of this is a really naive question. No, no, no. How, how common are, in, in a photographer's life, are self-portraits? How common are they? Yeah. Uh, I think there was a big movement. Cindy Sherman and and uh, um, Rosie Martin. and like There was a big movement, I guess, when feminism was really, like, at, at its kind of peak, I guess. Oh, was who was the eggs of, person? Sarah somebody? Who was... The eggs for breasts. Sarah Lucas, is that her name? No, Sarah. No, 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 no. no. Um, Rosie Martin and Joe Spence. Maybe Joe Sp- No? No, I've got an image of her in the in like the late 90s, early noughties, jacket, Brit, Brits. No, uh, maybe it's a bit earlier than that. Oh, we'll have to look that up. Okay. Yes, we'll sound terribly knowledgeable. I'll drop it in <laughs> with an entirely... Di- with a completely different audio <laughs> background. <laughs> <laughs> As though I just thought of it just now. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, but in regards to just, I guess me being naive, seeing women of colour do self-portraiture, I only really found out about it maybe in the last five years. I just never really saw it when I was going to kind of Tate and seeing museums mm. and seeing black women representing themselves. Only now I'm seeing a lot of kind of American and... American artists representing themselves so it was really um, liberating the project How do you rationalise that fact that, that observation that, there's, that there wasn't much self-representation going on? Just when I was just engaging with I guess that a lot of them were mainstream galleries just just not not seeing that um, I don't know I think a lot of as, as soon as as soon as we talk about kind of black people representing themselves there's always this air of kind of politics or it's it's kind of aggressive or hostile or controversial there's never this kind of freedom there's always this kind of cultural baggage so I think people sometimes find those images threatening without them being threatening at all so perhaps that's why I wasn't seeing that much of them growing up and I had to kind of dig them out to find them because they weren't people weren't people were kind of afraid of those images perhaps that's that's why I didn't see that many of them so that's a real freedom then that, that I guess in, what, in the context of what we're saying a white photographer has that perhaps they don't realise they have that they can, self, they can represent themselves without that in itself being a statement For sure, I mean every, every time I do kind of a, a talk or, or a workshop it's always like this black female photographer and it's, I'm never just Heather um, mm. but everybody else is kind of can be themselves and I mean a lot of my work is about race because I've experienced like a hell of a lot of racism but I wish I could have the freedom to just talk about whatever and it wouldn't always have to be connected to to race or, or expected that I'm some sort of spokesperson for black women or whatever, right? There's this um, expectation of a lot of artists to talk about, like, a whole community. So, it's, yeah, it'll be nice to just acknowledge that we talk about this, like, we're living, breathing people, right? Like, it's just because of race doesn't mean that we're, like... That's our only lens, I guess. So do, how does that work? Do you, do you find people trying to lasso you into their movements or something oh my gosh like October's like the busiest month like Black History Month is crazy so everyone's calling me like Heather come and do this thing so um I mean I'm grateful for having work right but um 
yeah you, you just you, you've got to be kind of extra careful what you say sometimes or sometimes you feel like you've got to be extra careful because it's representation of women here or I don't know there's there's just like a, a weight on your shoulders sometimes mm. and people just assume you're part of this movement because you are this criteria so it's tricky actually that well I wonder if that doesn't bring us back around in a funny way to Brexit because one of the things that was striking to me was uh, as I guess with politicisation of gender or gender discussions maybe maybe gender's always political but discussions of gender discussions of race Brexit stuff I, I always have this feeling that I'm being forced to adopt an identity or to own an identity maybe I'm in a very privileged position sometimes to not have to own an identity maybe the that's something that's come up from what we're talking about. But to what extent do you feel like identity gets in the way and talking about identity or representing identity or questions of identity and pigeonhole and those kind of things, how much does that get in the way of art? Does that outweigh its usefulness in art or its um, the, the level of interest that, that you can generate in something th- through those questions? How much of a role does identity play? For me, it's everything. And... I'm very, like I was saying, I'm very self-reflective. So I'll, if, an, if, an, if an interviewer or someone's questioning my work and talking about race, or I, I guess it's still like a, a really, really important issue that... I guess this is the idea that we're in this kind of post-racial world, so we kind of don't talk about something, even though we know that's what people really want to talk about. Like I was saying, like I, I became an artist not because of kind of wanting to talk about race, just because I wanted to create work about mental health and, and well-being. And because of my circumstances at this point, which I was saying I've gone through a lot of kind of racist experiences, and people still find it really uncomfortable and say really dodgy things to me all the time. So I feel like I, as an artist, I have to represent the times, like what's going on right now. So I think it's crucial to my work, really. Yeah, I think I, I find I'm kind of <laughs> not really answering the question, but if I, 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 I can't work out whether whether from what you're saying whether identity is something that you'd sooner wasn't an issue. Or, or whether it's something that, that you're very keen to explore. It's, uh, I don't know, it seems like you're coming from... No, when. Why not sure. coming from both angles at the same time? Yeah, yeah, I wish it wasn't. I wish... I mean, so the project Too Many Blackamores, the, the Lady Sarah project, was kind of birthed from... So I travel a lot around Europe. I just I just do on little trips and things like that. And a lot of... Um, so well, a lot of, well, you still can. Well, yeah, right. I've got, like, two years, I don't know. Like, um, and... Uh, nearly all of my race experience have happened in European countries and while I've hardly experienced anything in London living it like what 27 years like all my life realising that oh flip it's still it's really a big issue so this in London you are in this bubble because it even if people have those views, we don't talk about it. We've got stuff to do. Like everyone's really busy, right? So we have no time to acknowledge kind of people are very busy. That's kind of the the kind of I don't know, oxygen of this place. But when you go to European places, you realise that it's, it is a huge issue. So my brother... Oh, you think they're racist because they've got too much time on their hands? I don't know, maybe it's a time <laughs> thing. Maybe because people, people, people watch you for longer, people stare at you. Like I had people, someone like run after me with a camera. It was just absurd. But my brother, who's been to pretty much the exact same places, nothing's happened to him. But there's something about being a black woman that so much aggression is taken out on you. It's just surprising. And I've spoken to friends and people who come to my shows have, the, have had the exact same experiences. Huh. So 
I just can't lie and not acknowledge it. Like, I have to acknowledge it until it goes. I'm going to just bang on about it until it's not a problem and then I can move on. I'm not saying all my work's going to be about Race Forever. Like, Habitus is kind of nothing to do with it. It, it, it can, but it's not kind of the, the foundation. But I can't lie. Like, this is what's happening to me, you know. This is how I'm represented, so I've got to acknowledge it to try to represent myself. I guess so I wish it wasn't a thing but it is I've got to acknowledge it I want to in with your permission read out by way of proving that uh, some of the undercurrents in political thought or racial thought or uh, racist thought are nothing new uh, we might read out the quote that, that heads the too many blackamoors oh yeah display here cool so this is um oh so the book's called staying power by peter fryer Um, This is an extract from something Queen Elizabeth said. So on the 11th of July, 1596, Queen Elizabeth caused an open letter to be sent to the Lord Mayor of London and his aldermen and to the mayors and sheriffs of other towns in the following terms. Quote, Her Majesty understanding that several blackamoors have lately been brought into this realm of which kind of people that are already too many here. Her Majesty's pleasure, therefore, is that those kinds of people should be expelled from the land. And for that purpose, instruction is given to the bearer, Edward Barnes, to take ten of those blackamoors that were brought into this realm by Sir Thomas Baskerville on his last voyage and transport them out of the realm. In this, we require you to give him any help he needs without fail. So too many foreigners here. (laughs) Yes, they need to go. (laughs) There's far too many here already. I don't know whether it's okay to ask you, because you mentioned it several times, you, you, the mental health issues that got you into this whole realm in the first place. Yeah, so between the ages of around 16 to 20, I suffered from depression, and it was quite severe depression, and I didn't tell anyone until it got really bad. Um, so I was in university, and um, so this is before I touched photography, right? I was doing a psychology degree, and I was in university, and I was quite worried about being left alone, because I was thinking, how can I get out of the house a lot of the time when I'm not doing coursework? And then I just bought a camera. It was super random. I just spent my overdrafts and got a camera. And then photography really became like a therapeutic tool to understand what was going through for me and just to start to question what was going on in my head. And then that's kind of how it started my kind of photographic career. That sounds too perfect, but that's what happened. No, no, I'm just... (laughs) just trying to imagine how depression might influence what you turned your camera towards I I think I started thinking about I started being very critical about images and and going to galleries and looking at images of mostly people of colour men and women of colour and and finding that these images often are quite depressing and I started to think gosh have I internalised these images what does it mean when people see images of kind of disaster and chaos which looks like them like do they internalize how does it how does it affect their well-being so i think that's why i started taking images to critique that and start to think about the the kind of responsibility of the photographer do is there kind of a duty of care to their subjects um how is it going to affect people within the wider community about the images they're taking right is there a collaborative approach are the subjects voiceless so those are the concerns i was I've kind of always been talking, thinking about because of how images affected me. I find it so heartening to hear a photographer talking that way. Is that that duty of care issue, for example? I mean, I'm quite frightened of photography. 
in, in a certain, to be honest, because I'm conscious of pictures like a, a shot taken without the subject's knowledge of some people eating some. Well, there was that guy who was taking pictures of people eating food on the tube, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fairly innocuous, but if you isolate that moment and put it for everybody to see then it becomes kind of exposing and, and weird in some way. And, you know, there's a lot of that stuff going on. Just a, an average street scene taken by a photographer for a, to illustrate a newspaper report about the housing market or something, and suddenly you walking along smoking your fag on your lunch break is on the front page, and it's, and it's weird. And with everybody with their little mobile phone cameras and you can't tell whether picture, people are taking pictures, I find that very uncomfortable. Mm. I, I, I feel like I want to uh, hide behind a newspaper. <laughs> I think... I mean, I don't think a lot... In, this is the thing with my critique of photojournalism. I did this panel discussion at Oxford, like, last month. And I was talking so much about that, but there's kind of deadlines and type... Like, they've got no time, really, to concern themselves about how the subject's kind of thinking and feeling. They just want to kind of bear witness. But I've got a deep concern with the subjects. I want to talk to, to them and see how they feel. I want their approval. If they don't want the picture, I'm not going to have it out because you can kind of win an award or do something great with that image but that person could have long-lasting effects with depression or that image of the person eating food they might have an issue with their weight I don't know right like what are those implications and I just I just think we've just got to be more concerned as people about how images are affecting people because with social media they can be there for the rest of your life and they can be going globally right so I'm just I know how images affected me so I really have got a use that same care with other people mm. I, just, I just have to uh, we're coming amazingly quickly it feels to the end of our time a lazy question but I hope a revealing one of all the pictures you've taken I wonder if there's one that makes you particularly proud or means even more than some of the others to you um, as we can describe gosh. it and end with an image I guess there's an image <laughs> in the gaze of Agaboshi where there is um there's, there's two people in the shot there's one who there's a guy who's uh, pointing to waste and there's a guy who's showing me waste and I didn't know why he was doing that but he said all the photographers this is what they want to see I didn't even ask him to it seemed like he was performing for me and that really broke my heart because he sees the West as he needs to perform and he needs to kind of bend and mould himself even though I didn't ask him and I just started thinking about questions about you that all of these kind of ethical questions started from that image of how sometimes subjects have to perform to benefit the photographer and not themselves so I think that image really like broke my heart people can see that image of course yes online and most of the others that we've been talking about uh, where can they do that yeah on my website so heather agipong a-g-y-e-p-o-n-g dot com so all of the all the information's there for today, Heather Ajipong, thanks very much. Cool, pleasure, thank you. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Heather Ajipong. Thanks to, to John McKinnon and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm Anne Quentin Wolfe.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.